Well, hello and welcome to Purpose Church. I just want to quickly say we love you, online community. And you're not just a number to us. You're a person. You're a person with a story. And we want to get to know you more. And one of our favorite things is when we get to hear from some people that are a part of our online community. In fact, we know Damaris is out there watching right now. And Anissa, we're so proud of you both for finishing school. And and Lindsay watching from Colorado. We're glad you're joining us. And and we got Ed out there and and Alex watching from Canada. Welcome. We're so glad that you are joining us today. In fact, if you are watching online and you have never filled out one of our connect cards, we would love to hear from you. We want to connect with you. You can go to purposechurch.com slash connect. In fact, I want to invite you to do that right now, to go to purposechurch.com slash connect. Fill out that form. Let us know where you're watching from because we'd love to connect with you even more. Well, you're finding us in the middle of our year-long series, Jesus on Every Page. And we're actually towards the tail end of the Old Testament as we're finishing up in the Minor Prophets. And today we're talking about the Minor Prophet, Zechariah, Jesus, our humble King. Now, I wonder if you, like me, grew up terrified of that ugly brown bottle and the solution that was inside of it. Maybe you remember getting a cut on your hand or on your leg and and one of your parents or your caregiver would, would bring out that brown, ugly bottle. And as soon as you saw it, the, the hairs on the back of your neck stood up because you knew it was going to do the job, but you knew it was going to hurt. I bet you're imagining what I'm imagining. That little bottle we call hydrogen peroxide. Now, I remember when I was in junior high, I loved skateboarding and I was skateboarding in front of one of my friend's houses when all of a sudden I fell and my palms went towards the street and and the gravel was really rough. And I remember as I landed on the ground, my, my palms were torn up and they were bloody and there was rock and gravel and dirt inside of them. And my friend said, well, we got to go inside and my mom's going to put some hydrogen peroxide on your hands. And I thought it might be better to just cut off my hand and save the pain. But when I went in there into her house, she poured some of that hydrogen peroxide on my hand and it hurt. I mean, it it stung. It was not comfortable but it helped. In fact, hydrogen peroxide has this ability to heal a wound and prevent it from getting worse. I think hydrogen peroxide could be an illustration for us this morning when we think about the book of Zechariah. In fact, Zechariah is kind of like hydrogen peroxide. Here's here's what I mean. The prophecy from Zechariah became like a healing agent for those in Judah who were returning from exile. It reminded them that God had not forgotten about them. But not only was the book of Zechariah healing, but it was to prevent them from returning to their old sins. Now, we're having a lot of fun in this series talking about these books and understanding the context. And so let's discover a little bit of the context together. Let's talk about the dating of Zechariah. When we think about the dating of Zechariah, let's look at Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Now, 
what does that tell us about the dating? Well, here's, here's what it tells us. Darius, the Babylonian king, reigned from 522 to 486 BC, which means the eighth month of the second year of Darius was October 27th, 520 BC. Now, we've talked about a lot of dates throughout this series. And as we're ending our study of the minor prophets, I want to put all of it in context with some really significant moments in Israel's history. So let's look at some of these dates together. In the year 931 BC, the Northern and Southern kingdom split. Israel was one at this time, but after Solomon's reign, they split into the Northern kingdom, the larger kingdom and, and the Southern kingdom, the smaller one. In 722 BC, the Northern kingdom, Israel fell to the Assyrians. In 605 BC, that first group of exiles were taken from Judah to Babylon. In 598 BC, there was a second group of exiles from Judah that were taken to Babylon. And in 586 BC, the third and last group of exiles were taken from Judah to Babylon as the southern kingdom Judah was, uh, fell under the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. In 538 BC, Zerubbabel leads Israel. He he led about 50,000 Israelites. And Zechariah, who we're talking about today, was probably a small child. And he went back with them to help rebuild the temple. In 520 BC, Zechariah and Haggai receive a word of the Lord, which is what we're studying today. In 516 BC, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is finally completed. In 458 BC, Ezra in Jerusalem, Ezra goes to Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then finally, in 444 BC, Nehemiah arrives and finishes rebuilding Jerusalem's wall. So as you can see, this is where the stories fit into what we're studying today in the book of Zechariah. Now, what's the purpose of Zechariah? The purpose of Zechariah is this. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Like Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah called on God's people to remember God's command to finish rebuilding the temple. In the same way, the Lord remembered his promise to bring them back to Judah after 70 years in exile. Zechariah's mission was to assure the people that God cared for them and would keep his covenant promises to them. The nation would be reestablished, prosper, and play a crucial role in the events at the end of this present age. In March of 516 BC, just four years after Zechariah began his ministry in the sixth year of Darius, the people finished the temple. Zechariah is a message today for everyone everywhere that God is faithful, trustworthy, and calling humanity back to himself. But let's dig a little bit deeper into the text as we will see the purpose of Zechariah unfolding. Chapter one, verses two to four. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Remember, this is a message for the people in Judah who are returning from Babylon to, that have been in exile, returning from Babylon back to Judah. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, remember that, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. God is clear. He is calling his people to return to him. And that's part of God's message for you today. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your weekend has looked like. I don't know what the last six months have looked like, but you know, God knows, and he is inviting you and me to return to him. You see, the story is we walked away from God. God wants us to come home. Now, three times just in verse three, the word Lord, the, the, the name for God, Lord Almighty is used. And in fact, Lord Almighty is used 90 times just within the short text of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So this, this call, this name for God, Lord Almighty, is a significant one. What does it mean? Well, here's what Lord Almighty means. Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the most common name for God. And it means self-existent, eternal God. Almighty is the Hebrew word tzaba, which means all-powerful warrior God. Now, this, this word Yahweh for God, it was held in such high esteem that, that many Jews, they wouldn't even say the word Yahweh. They, in fact, whenever they would read it in their Hebrew text, they would change it when they pronounced it to Hashashem, which means the name. In other words, they, were, they held the name of God in such high renown in their hearts and lives that they wouldn't even read it. Now, friends, this begs the question, what role does God play in your life? How renowned is he in your heart and your life? If Jesus is just a lingering acquaintance in your life, if he's just someone who you kind of check in with every once in a while, if Jesus is a lingering acquaintance, you'll leave him on the doormat. But if Jesus is your Lord Almighty, he has access and authority over every room of your life. Is God a, a lingering acquaintance or is he your Lord Almighty? Now, what's interesting about the book of Zechariah is you could really break it up into three acts or, or three different movements. Act one is Zechariah sees visions from God in his dreams. That's chapters one through six. Act two, Zechariah receives Israel's next step from God. That's chapter seven to eight. And then act three, Zechariah learns details about the Messiah. And that's chapters nine through 14. So let's dig into each one of these together. Let's start with act one. Zechariah sees visions from God in his dreams. Chapters one through six. Now, maybe some of you are like, hold on, Eric, hold on, Eric. We got Baptistic roots here at Purpose Church. Visions and dreams, that may be a little too charismatic for me. Like, I, I don't know about that. Friends, I need to remind you that biblically, God has been speaking through dreams since Genesis. And he even still continues to do that today. You know, in, in August of 2001, 
I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I went to Forest Home Christian Camp with the youth group that I was a part of, but I wasn't an active follower of Jesus. In fact, we have a photo from that camp. This was a high school camp, Forest Home, summer of 2001. And and there's a picture of me. I'm right up here. You can in fact zoom in. Yeah, that's me right there. I'm a freshman in high school and someone's holding me like an infant. I was just small for my age. I don't know, I guess, but that's me. Here's the crazy part of the story. On the other side of the camp photo, that's Sarah. My wife, Sarah, was on the other side of camp. And so maybe some of you are holding on. You're like, man, does camp love exist? Does church love exist? Every once in a while, every once in a while, it works out. But at this camp, when I went, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And then on the last, on the last night of camp, the speaker, it was decision night. It was the opportunity to, to surrender our lives to Christ. And as, as the speaker was sharing He said something profound that stuck with me. In fact, I I still haven't forgotten it to this day. In the middle of his sermon, he said, he was talking about a time in his life when he was not actively following Jesus. And he said during this time, he had a dream. And he said in the dream, he, he found himself in the middle of a bridge. And on one side, God and the angels were over here. And on the other side, Satan and demons were over there. And, and, and he said that in this dream, God continued to say to him, hey, why don't you come over to my side? I want to be in a relationship with you. Come on over to my side. And he said in the dream, no, God, I, I'm not ready to give my life to you. I'm more comfortable right here in the middle of the bridge. And every time he responded to God like that in the dream, Satan and the demons would just laugh. Well, this happened over and over again. And then finally in the dream, he looks at God and he says, God, How come every time I tell you I'm not ready to go to your side that I want to stay right here in the middle of the bridge, Satan and the demons laugh. And in the dream, God said to him, it's because Satan owns the bridge. And my friends, maybe that's hitting you like it hit me. I was realizing at that point, man, I thought I was safe and comfortable and everything was great for me to just live this kind of lukewarm, kind of curious about Christianity, but not willing to make a significant decision. I thought everything was okay, but I was on Satan's bridge. And that, that dream spoke so powerfully to me. And scripture talks about being wise with how we interpret spirits and dreams. In John, in 1 John chapter 4, Verses one to four, it says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Next verse. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in this world. And so John here, he says, look, test dreams that you have and visions. Test the feelings that you have up against God's word. Don't just let visions and dreams um, in and of themselves interpret whether they're true. No, go to God's word to determine, do they align with God's word? Do they acknowledge the truth of God's scripture? And if they do, then it's probably God speaking to you. And then there's this last verse in verse four. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I just wanna stop here and have a pastoral moment for a second. I think there's some of you tuning in who you've experienced a lot of spiritual warfare that whether it's dreams, 
whether it's, it's distractions throughout your day, you're kind of sensing that Satan and his demons are really going after you and trying to get in the way of you following Jesus. And it can be an incredibly discouraging experience. But I wanna remind you of the truth of this scripture and it's this, the Holy Spirit inside of you is stronger than Satan outside of you. I need to say that again, the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit inside of you is stronger than Satan outside of you. And so when you feel those demonic attacks or, or, or you just feel that evil force coming up against you and, and you're trying to figure out what to do, talk to Jesus. Say, say God, I know that because your Holy Spirit lives in me, he's stronger than Satan is. On your own, you can't overcome Satan. With the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can. So, so when we get back to these idea of visions and dreams that Zechariah experienced as they span chapters one to six of Zechariah, there's an interesting correlation between the dreams. And I wanna, I wanna show you what I'm talking about. Zechariah's eight dream visions. And they're really interesting because the dreams actually parallel each other. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Dreams one and eight have the images of the four horsemen on patrol. The passages are Zechariah 1, 8 to 17 and chapter six, verses one to eight. And the meaning is the four horsemen represent God watching over Israel and the world. Dreams two and seven include four horns, four blacksmiths, and a basket woman. It comes from Zechariah 1, 18 to 21 and chapter five, verses five to 11. And the meaning is this, reflecting on Israel's past sin and repentance, the four horns symbolize Assyria and Babylon, whom God used to scatter Israel and Judah. The four blacksmiths symbolize Persia, whom God used to scatter Assyria and Babylon. The woman in the basket symbolizes the centuries of Israel's rebellion from God and being carried off by idolatry. Dreams three and six include Jerusalem is measured and there's a flying scroll. Scripture's crazy like this. The passages are Zechariah 2, 1 to 13 and chapter five, verses one to four. The meaning is Jerusalem being measured symbolizes God rebuilding Israel and using them to be a light to the nations. The flying scroll punished sinners in the new Jerusalem and represented Israel's purification through their understanding and obedience to God's word. And then we have dreams four and five. The images are Joshua, the high priest and Zerubbabel, the royal heir of David. The passages are Zechariah chapter three, verses one to 10 and chapter four, verses one to 14. The meaning is Joshua is called to lead God's people spiritually and Zerubbabel is called to lead God's people in rebuilding the temple. And then at the end, there's this bonus vision. The images are, are a picture of the future Messiah from Zechariah chapter six, verses nine to 15. And the meaning of this is that Joshua is given a crown and he is presented as a symbol of the future Messiah. Now let's move into act two of Zechariah. Act two is Zechariah receives Israel's next step from God. And this is in chapters seven to eight. Zechariah chapter eight, verses 15 to 17. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. 
Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. God is calling his people, Israel, to be faithful to God's commands and to stand out as a people. He is not calling them to blend in with their culture. He is calling them to stand out as a light to the Gentiles of God's goodness and his righteousness and his love and what that should look like in his people's lives. And, you know, I was thinking about Dr. the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a speech that he gave. Uh, it was the Knock at Midnight 1967 speech at Mount Zion Baptist Church where he said some really prophetic and profound words. He said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. You see, God has always called his people to be distinct, to stand out, to be a light to the nations. And the problem for many of us is that we are more well known for our political affiliations, for our preferences, for the things that we're passionate about than we are for our identity as children of God in the body of Christ as followers of Jesus. And we're called to stand out, not to be coerced by any other entities or uh, idolatries or any kind of ideologies, but we are called to stand out in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our country, in our state, everywhere we find ourselves as, as the conscience of the nation that we represent Jesus Christ. I wanna ask you, do the people who know you best know that Jesus is first priority in your life? Do the people who know you best, or maybe even your neighbors, the people who interact with you, do they know that Jesus is your first allegiance and your first priority? And our final act, act three, Zechariah learns details about the Messiah chapters nine to 14. And I'm really excited for this part because we're going to look at some passages in Zechariah and then we're going to find ourselves in Psalm 22 and we're going to see how these texts that were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene predicted with accuracy and details and perfection exactly what Jesus would end up enduring, which begs the question, these claims about the Messiah from the Old Testament, if they were truly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then he is the Messiah. He is God Almighty, the Lord Almighty, and he is the Lord of the universe. So let's look at these together. Number one, first thing we learn about the Messiah, number one, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a really peculiar prophecy because everyone would have thought a king rides in on a powerful horse, not lowly on a donkey. And yet that's exactly what happened 
in Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. It happened just like the prophet prophesied, just like Jesus said would happen. Now, now this is a really significant detail because you see Jesus from the get-go, from the very beginning, Jesus was a different king. Jesus is a different king. You see, in the ancient Near East, in the first century culture that Jesus grew up in and did ministry in, whenever a king would ride through a town, they would ride through on their most powerful horses with their huge armies following them. And yet Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe, he rides into town on a donkey. Not only was he fulfilling a prophecy, but he was communicating something really important for you and I, and it's this. Worldly kings, worldly kings forced others to die in their place. King Jesus willingly died in our place. Why was Jesus a different king? Because worldly kings, they required their subjects to die so they wouldn't have to. But King Jesus, the creator of the universe, the person who knit you together in your mother's womb, the creator of you and everything you see, Jesus willingly died in your place so that you and I could have a relationship with him. Number two, the Messiah would be pierced instead of having his legs broken. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a first born. So we're talking about being pierced here. Jump to Psalm chapter 34. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So this tradition began to form that the Messiah would be pierced and that his legs would not be broken. What a specific prophecy. And then hundreds of years later in the gospel of John, John chapter 19, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. This is fascinating because this is not a prophecy Jesus had any control of. This was the Romans deciding not to break his legs just like scripture promised would happen. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water just like Zechariah and Psalms and David talked about. Number three, the Messiah would cry out, why have you forsaken me? Psalm chapter 22, verse one. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. We'll jump over to Mark chapter 15. It was nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus. And at three in the afternoon, so Jesus died on the cross, took him six hours. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's more. Number four, the Messiah would be insulted on the cross. Psalm 22, verses seven to eight. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, this comes true. This happens. Jesus fulfills this. or this is fulfilled in Jesus's crucifixion. Look at Matthew chapter 27. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I mean, this is incredible. These prophecies are literally being fulfilled over and over again. But there's, there's two more. Number five, the Messiah's hands and feet would be nailed to the cross. Psalm 22, 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. What a specific prophecy. And then John chapter 20, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But is Thomas speaking. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus speaking, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The prophecy is that Jesus, would, that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. And that's exactly what happened. And then here's our final one. Number six, the Messiah's garments would be given away by casting lots. And again, another great example of a prophecy Jesus had no control over. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And then look at John 19, 24. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So, so this is what the soldiers did. Now it's not just in these ancient first century documents that are recorded, that, are, that were canonized and put together in the Bible that we learn of these details. I mean, look at the words of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr said this in the year 155 AD. And the expression, they pierced my hands and my feet was used in reference to the nails of the cross, which were fixed in his hands and feet. And after he was crucified, they cast lots upon his vesture. And they that crucified him parted it among them. And that these things did happen, you can ascertain from the acts of Pontius Pilate. 
But there's even earlier evidence of this. Josephus, the the first century Jewish Roman historian, he, he wrote this. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had reported wonders and the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. And 2000 years later, that statement is still true. Now I wanna close out our time talking about uh, an image that shows up towards the end of Zechariah. And it's the image of a worthless shepherd. I wanna talk about how in scripture, there's two different shepherds. There's two different shepherds. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17 says this, woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered. His right eye totally blinded. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, John chapter 10, verses 10 to 11. This is Jesus speaking. The thief or the worthless shepherd comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is Satan. But I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You've got Satan, you've got the ways of this world, you've got material things that we cling to. They're they're the worthless shepherd that deserts you and I in our moment of need. And then there's the better shepherd, the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is understood and defined as the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, Jesus has done this for you. Jesus is not a worthless shepherd, a lingering acquaintance. Jesus is the Lord Almighty, the good shepherd who lays down his life for you and for me. And Jesus wants a relationship with you. And I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know what led you to turn this on. I don't know where you're at in life right now, but I know that Jesus loves you and that he brought you here for a reason to this moment. Several weeks ago, I was preaching at a camp to a group of junior high students and one of the youth pastors of one of the churches shared this this story with me. There was a, a young man, a junior higher in the youth group who wanted to invite his friend who didn't know Jesus to summer camp. And the mom of that friend who also wasn't a Christian said, I'll only let my son go to this camp if I can go as a chaperone because y'all are Christians and I don't know what weird things you do at those camps. And so I'm only gonna let my son go if you'll let me go as a chaperone. So the youth pastor agreed and this mom went as a chaperone just to make sure her son was safe during this week of camp. Well, towards the end of camp, I gave a gospel message. I shared the good news of Jesus, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive the sins of all of humanity and for everyone who would believe and put their faith and their trust in Jesus. 
And then I gave an opportunity for any junior high student who had never received Christ to stand up as a way of declaring that Jesus was the Lord of their lives. And in the very back of the room, that mom who came as a chaperone wanting to make sure her kid was gonna be safe, stood and received Christ. You see friends, I, I don't know what got you here today, but I can promise you this, that God can use whatever got you here to meet you here. And he doesn't wanna just meet you here, but he wants to save you. He wants to draw you into relationship with himself. It's why in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, Paul said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Not just some, some truth statement or some, some belief, but he's the Lord of my life. If you declare Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you tired of trying to be the Lord of your life? Are you, are you tired of life being all about you and your aspirations? Is there a part of you that desires to be right with God? That maybe even right now you're recognizing that you were designed and created to be in a relationship with Jesus where he's the good shepherd, the Lord of your life. I wanna give you an opportunity to make that decision now. And so would you just simply from wherever you're at right now, would you just pray with me right now? Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I'm tired of trying to be the Lord of my life. I believe that Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead for me. And Jesus, I wanna begin following you right now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you have begun a relationship with Jesus. And we wanna encourage you to connect with us at Purpose Church. You can go to purposechurch.com slash connect, fill out some information. Let us know that you just made that decision and we would love to follow up with you. We love you and we're praying for you. Have a great day.